Hi, and a happy 2023 to you all. I hope you've had a fun Christmas holidays and New Year. We had a rare treat. My husband's sister, three of their kids and two of their partners came over from Australia. And we were also joined by a cousin from Greece. My husband's Greek-Australian. So 13 for the week, some staying in the Airbnb next door, but socially mostly at ours. And we loved it. Have you still got your tree up? I'm loath to take ours down this year. I think it was our prettiest one ever. Last year, when we moved the tree, we found that our fairly new Dutch hound puppy had left us some surprises. <laughs> Obviously a little confused by the indoor-outdoor vibe. So hopefully less unwanted gifts behind the tree for us this year. And a big thank you to those of you who dropped a kind email, a comment or a note through the blog. They always make my day and leave me feeling very appreciated. So your end of year notes were wonderful to receive. Thank you. It's funny, you don't always know a great deal apart from the numbers when you have a podcast. So it was really good fun to hear from some of you. And now to this week, the podcast I've been promising. This is a good moment to pause the podcast if you've got children around you. You might prefer to listen to this one on your own or with your partner. There are some big words, there are some big themes. Now I'm all for being open but some of this is TMI for the younger ones or rather they might prefer to hear it filtered through a parent first rather than from a podcast in the kitchen or in the car. It's a conversation with sex and relationship therapist Emma Waring. She's written a fantastic book called Seasons of Sex and Intimacy. I'll put a link in the show notes. She doesn't hold back. Prepare to have your eyebrows shoot up your forehead, particularly as the conversation progresses, but never without a sound point and purpose. So you'll come away enlightened, that I promise. And you might be asking, what's this got to do with parenting? Well, there wouldn't be much parenting without sex, but hilarious puns aside, this podcast is about you, your relationship and your family. So intimacy with your partner is a key part of life and we don't often talk about how to nurture that side of a relationship. I do appreciate that not everyone will be in a relationship, but you will have been and you might again and you'll have friends that are, so there'll be information to store from here. I also realise that some of you will be in difficult relationships, so the content might touch on some painful and disappointing areas of life, but I hope you'll find it helpful too. I first heard Emma Waring speaking at an event last year and was very keen to invite her onto the podcast. I'd give you a bit of a biog on Emma, but she does it so beautifully at the beginning of our conversation. I'll let her introduce herself. So here's my conversation with Emma Waring. So, Emma... I don't imagine that being a sex therapist was your childhood dream. Can you tell me what led you to it? It's funny, actually, because when I was about 13, one of my friends said to me, I can really imagine you 
being a relationship therapist and obviously that's a big part of my role but certainly yes I didn't imagine I'd be a sex therapist <laughs> so um my background is in nursing and I went uh, after qualifying I went straight into cardiac nursing and I was offering cardiac rehabilitation courses to couples and individuals who were recovering from a heart event so that would be heart surgery or a heart attack and at week six of that course, we talked about sex. We talked about whether it was safe to have sex and fears that couples might have that having sex would trigger another heart event or something like that. Um, so it was an area I was, I was interested in. I was doing a degree at the time in critical care nursing, and I chose to look at the subject of sex and whether we're good at talking about it in nursing. And we're not ever so good. We think it's important, but we don't regularly address it with our patients. And at the same time, one of the cardiologists who had been involved in the early work around Viagra wanted to get a specialist nurse to set up a clinic specifically treating erectile dysfunction in male cardiac patients. And we may well come on to that link later. So I was that nurse. I set up the clinic and I was seeing men and couples who were experiencing erectile dysfunction, so difficulty in getting or maintaining an erection sufficient for satisfactory sexual activity. That's the definition of erectile dysfunction. And um, what I found was that it's relatively straightforward to treat erection problems, but I was totally under-equipped to deal with the emotional fallout for, for couples whose relationships had broken down, perhaps they hadn't had sexual uh, intimacy for many years, didn't know what was going on, felt confused, rejected, angry, all number of things. And I just thought I need, need some additional training. So I embarked on a two-year postgrad diploma in psychosexual therapy and qualified in 2004 as a sex and relationship therapist. And then more recently, I've also trained as a general therapist. And most sex therapists are general therapists who then specialize in sex therapy. I came in as a nurse who immediately specialized in sex therapy, but I realized something else that was missing for me was a more general training in therapy to deal with issues like anxiety, depression, self-esteem issues, attachment issues, all those kind of things. Uh, so I've sort of merged three roles, really. I've got a nursing hat, a sex therapy hat, and a general therapy hat. And I kind of merge them together so that I'm able to work quite broadly with whatever the patients bring. And so although you started with erectile dysfunction, you must now be seeing a more broad array of issues. Yes. So I would say that probably about 30% of the patients that I see have erectile dysfunction. And that can be divided into what we call organic or psychogenic. So those are just medical terms, really, for having an underlying physical cause that's organic or an underlying psychological cause. And I see a mixed bag of those men. And then the other things that I see are ejaculatory problems. So a man ejaculates sooner than he would want or his partner would want, or it takes him a long time to ejaculate. That's called delayed ejaculation. I work with clients, usually women, occasionally men who present with dyspareunia. That's the medical term for painful sex. So that's really common. About one in 10 women will experience painful sex at some point in their life. It may be linked to menopause. It may be linked to following childbirth. And I will occasionally see men who present uh, with painful sex. And that's usually linked to having a type 4 skin that's not been diagnosed. 
Then there's a condition called vaginismus, and this is an involuntary spasm of the vaginal muscle that makes any sort of vaginal penetration really painful and often in most cases impossible. And I would say probably about 40% of the work that I do now is with couples who present with vaginismus, who often, interestingly, want to have a baby and they've not been able to have penetrative intercourse. And then the final issue that I tend to work with is low desire. And I see as much of that in men as I do in women. So just a lack of desire, low libido, a lack of interest in wanting to pursue sexual intimacy. And often the reason that couples seek help is it's causing conflict in their, within their relationship or their marriage. And is that low desire usually linked to psychological issues or medical issues? That's a really important and interesting question. So low desire is probably the most complex issue I work with because so many things feed into our desire to want to be sexual. And I sort of break it down into a couple of groups, really. If there is something that is functionally wrong, so if the act of having sex is not working, so the, for example, the man can't get an erection or the woman is experiencing pain, it's no surprise that they're not going to want to do it. So the libido, the low desire is a secondary issue. If you sort out the functional issue, often the desire will naturally come back. So you think, okay, is there something physically going on? Is there a lot of conflict in the relationship? And the couple could manage to have sex, but actually they don't like each other very much. And so you need to then do some work on the relationship and what's going on there. It can be that the couple can have sex, but they don't really enjoy it. They have a very limited sexual repertoire. They don't have a lot of understanding about ways to arouse their partner or to be aroused themselves. So the reason that there's low desire, it's just not very enjoyable and it might be boring. The fourth reason is that the functional side works. There's no conflict. Sex is good when they do it. It's just life is so busy. It's so busy and there are so many other priorities that they haven't found a way to prioritize sex and bring it to the top of the list. So it's, it happens sort of high days and holidays. And sometimes I'll say to a couple, you know, when did you last go away together? And they might say, we went away a year ago for a weekend and I'll say, how was sex? And they'll say, it was really good but we haven't done it for the last year since we've been home. And so there, that's about working with the couple to understand, okay, how are you going to make sure this is a priority and sort of reframing how they think about sex. So it can be, low desire can be one of those issues, or it can actually be all four or a combination of, of two or three. So it's sort of teasing out what's underlying the low desire and then working out how to approach that. And I think for the listeners that I've got who have got children or young children, babies, or maybe they're, you know, even in the sort of empty nesting stages and life is just expected to be busy. I think you'll be touching on something there and even be normalizing something. I was asked to do a talk on sex. This is going back about 10 years now. And I was staggered by the lack of sex that's going on out there. So I think it would be helpful if you perhaps touched on that for some of the listeners. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting because when I was writing my book, I tried to get stats on sexless marriages and it was just really difficult to do because I think people just don't talk about it. But I know from conversations that I have with people in my own life, they will, perhaps because of what I do, they're more likely to disclose it to me. But it's a fairly regular thing that people will comment on the fact that sexual intimacy isn't a big part of their relationship. And maybe it's completely stopped. It's interesting. I am a big fan of somebody called Esther Perel, which you may, she may have come across her. Yeah, she's well known. And she's, she's a a sex therapist who wrote a sort of really pivotal book in 2008, I think it was called Mating in Captivity. And she says that her research had shown that people were in committed relationships, very often married, happy with their partner, loved their partner, but they weren't sexual. And she wanted to get to the bottom of why this was. And she did research across the the world. And what she found was when she asked the couple, when are you most drawn to your partner? The person would always talk about when they saw their partner outside of the usual context. So they didn't say, I'm most drawn to my husband when I see him putting out the bins on a Wednesday (laughs) night. (laughs) They would say, yeah, I'm most drawn to my husband when I go into a party and he's talking in an animated way with some friends and I'm reminded of the person that I met when we were dating. Or the guy might say, I went to pick my wife up from work or my partner up from work and I saw the tail end of a presentation she was giving and I suddenly thought, wow, she's an independent woman in her own right who's uh, pursuing a career. And actually, again, that was something that they connected with when they first met. But you kind of lose sight of that. And Esther Perel says, "As, as human beings, we're quite complex because on the one hand, we want security, consistency, stability, reliability, love, family, home life. On the other hand, we want risk and novelty and spontaneity. And these two things are often opposing forces. And she says the problem is that for lots of couple, it's couples, it's all about the, the stability And that's quite right if, you know, you're perhaps you're raising children to have core stability. But she says we mustn't lose the part of ourselves that has passions and interests. And we must make sure that we have a place, each of us, to pursue those. So that when we're having dinner with our partner, we've gone out for dinner for a date night, perhaps. We're not just talking about the fact that the bins were collected late on that Wednesday when, you know, your husband put that. You're actually talking about the fact that you've discovered this new book and it's really interesting and it's really making you think a certain way about something. Or you're joining a book club or you're getting animated about doing some sporting event or some challenge. It could be as simple as really focusing on making time to spend to to be with your friends away from your partner and your family. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I sort of liken it, you know, if you're skiing and yes. it is, everyone's telling their stories and it freshens up conversation, doesn't it? When you've got adventures yes. to report, I can really... It really that. does. And Esther Perel says you need a bridge to cross to get to your partner. It's like you do need some distance. And the other thing that she talks about, so on the one hand, she talks about the need for us to have separateness 
agreed separateness away from our partners. So like you say, we come back with stories and tales and exciting things that interest us. The other thing she says that's really important and I think is key. And you may remember that I said there's a group of people that I work with where there's low desire. There isn't a functional problem. The sex is actually good when the couple do it, but it's just at the bottom of the priority list. If you watch films or dramas, sex is usually portrayed as being passionate and spontaneous. So, you know, these two people, they get in from work, uh, they rip each other's clothes off, they have sex quite quickly, they both orgasm at the same time. It's passionate. And She said that's not real life. And the problem is lots of couples are waiting for that moment that they've seen on the film uh, to translate to them. And actually, we have to be really real about letting that go. And that is quite sad because we hold on to what we see as being the gold standard. And she said, what you have to do is you have to be really intentional about sex. So you have to talk to your partner about when you like it, what time of day, how often, what turns you on. So you have to have a conversation around it. And the reason we don't like being intentional is when we talk about intentionality, there's an implied aspect of work involved, which is true. There is, you know, we have to be mindful and actually talk about this stuff to make it happen. And That's not what we're led to believe good sex is about. Good sex just happens spontaneously. We don't plan it. We don't talk about it. And that is a difficult tension for couples. And if they can get past that, actually, that's really liberating because they do prioritize it. They do work out when it's going to happen, how regularly it will happen. And that will often mean that it's at the top of the priority list and the couple are being regularly intimate. And we know from... There's a big research study in America by somebody called Amy Hughes, who interviewed 15,000 couples. And what she found was those couples that had regular intimacy, and that, that was once a week. So it didn't mean that it had to be full intercourse, but those couples that had regular intimacy, i.e. once a week, reported higher levels of sexual satisfaction and higher levels of relationship satisfaction. And what was interesting was that wasn't increased if you had sex more than once a week. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you could have sex every day, but you'd still report the same level. So there's something magic about once a week. And interestingly, as a sex therapist, we were always trained to encourage couples to have intimacy, to try and have intimacy once a week, because it's a sort of finite period of time. And if you start saying, well, it could be two weeks, well, then why not three? Why not four? You know, once a week helps to get some regularity to it and means that there's never too long between intimacy, which means the experience is likely to be more enjoyable because you have some momentum and you get to know each other's bodies and you don't forget that. And also desire begets desire, doesn't it? I mean, even if you liken it to going for a run, You're more likely to want exercise if your body's had some exercise. Yeah, that's good. There is a very important technique that we use in sex therapy. We call it timetabling. And, you know, it really is what it says it is. You know, so I'll get a couple to get their diary and say, okay, you've come to me because you know that sex is important for your relationship. You actually enjoy sex when you do it. But there is something, a block here around finding a way to prioritize it. I mean, it is really interesting when you get people to get their diaries because often they are so full of, 
well, I'm taking this child here, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But what's another interesting observation, uh, and you can't help a lot of the child stuff that you, that you need to do, you know, the, the family life stuff. What's interesting is that lots of couples seem to prioritise doing social events with other people. But when I actually ask them when they when they last went out on a date night together, it could be, oh, we haven't done that for months or we never do that. And I do think there's something that's quite important about scheduling time as a couple to just enjoy each other's company and kind of connect and connect emotionally and do something fun together go and see yes. a film go for a picnic go for a walk go for a, to out for a meal to the theater any number of things and i think that's often then a good time to think about scheduling intimacy after that so it's like for a lot of couples it would be okay let's get really serious about when we're going to have that date night and off the back of that, we will then have an expectation that we're going to be sexually intimate. One of the things that Esther Perel says is that actually, in many ways, if you're intentional and you talk about when you're going to have sex, there is actually anticipation. So, so you do build something around knowing that this is going to happen. And that in itself can actually increase people's desire. Isn't that interesting? And also, we, we have a point in the week where we have a date, but we have a separate moment in the week where we might talk about our marriage or our relationship, because there isn't anything very sexy about talking about things that you want to kind of clear up in the relationship. Do you recommend that? Yeah, so I actually think you need three connection points. So again, you know, potentially quite a big thing to schedule in. But I think the date night needs to be about fun. So I totally agree with you. It's not the time to bring up that you're really angry about something because it will potentially ruin the evening. Or talk about the kids. Yeah. So I think you do need kind of relationship housekeeping meetings, which are specifically focused on things that are bothering you or that you feel you need to address. And then the other meeting that I think is really interesting to have is to actually have a kind of house business meeting. Uh, My husband and I do this. So we will go through tasks that need to be done. They'll be allocated. Having them on a list is actually, again, quite liberating. My, My husband was much keener to sort of embrace this. And I sort of railed against it a bit, but he's totally right. It's brilliant. If you think about how businesses are run, they they are very focused on tasks, who's doing what, when they'll be done by. And actually, in a way, running a house is no different. There's lots to be done. And it can be very liberating to have that down on paper and to actually know who's doing what. When you're not carrying around the weight of sort of 10 tasks, mm. you've got the weight of five and you know when yes. you can do them by. I love so, that. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And it leaves you space, doesn't it, to have fun when you're having fun? or have a nice conversation absolutely I wanted to dial back to something that you said where do you think we get our sex data from I mean it it must be tv to a greater extent mustn't it yeah I think we're getting better generally in society about talking about sex so you know when I first started out in this job sort of 20 odd years ago it didn't feel that sex was talked about in a meaningful, helpful way on television. It, it was just portrayed in a certain way in the films that sets expectations up that are going to leave people disappointed and the expectations are unrealistic. I, I do 
I've, I'm coming across more and more programs on TV that are talking much more explicitly about sex, about what people want, about what turns them on. Some of the things I've seen, I'm not sure about, but I suppose the fact that this is sex is being talked about in a constructive way has got to be a good move. But I think one of the problems, and, and of course, you get question and answers, you get agony columns about sex. So there's there's one that I read in a popular uh, weekend newspaper, and there are always sexual problems. And, you know, they are addressed in a constructive way. I'm not sure the problems are always genuinely written in by readers, but uh, submitted by readers, but actually the advice that's given usually is really helpful. And it will talk about what's considered normal. Actually, you know, we have these perceptions around what people are doing and often research will be quoted. So I think those kind of things are quite helpful. I do have some concerns about the fact that I think young people are accessing pornography as a way to learn about sex. And I have some concerns about that and how that will impact and influence their expectations around sex. And are you seeing more of that in young people coming to you or middle-aged yeah so 20 years ago I wouldn't necessarily directly ask a patient a man or a woman about their use of pornography but I I do that now as a matter of routine and part of the reason for that is when I'm doing an assessment to understand a bit more about the person not just the sexual problem but more about the personality where they grew up what they do for a living all that kind of thing I will ask them how they learned about sex and I would say that people that I'm that are coming to me now in their 20s certainly in their 20s and also in their 30s will be saying I learned about sex through pornography and I didn't hear that 15, 20 years ago, I just didn't. And if you wanted to access pornography, you had to be intentional. You go to the news agents, reach up to the top shelf, buy the magazine. But I think now pornography is so easily accessible on phones. It's shared between young people that it just seems to be a way that people are learning about sex. But in answer to your question, I don't specifically work with a compulsive sexual behaviour or sexual addiction. However... More and more people are saying to me, usually men, occasionally women, but are saying to me that they feel instinctively that an over-reliance on pornography has negatively impacted their ability, their sexual function, but also their ability to get aroused with their partner. And they are cutting down through their own choice. They're cutting down on how much pornography they watch. Sometimes they're stopping it altogether because they recognise it's not helpful and it is shaping the the way their brain responds to sex with a partner in a negative way. Fascinating. It's it's sort of touted as a liberation, isn't it? But there it is, it's actually interfering. But even if you were to move away from pornography and just back into sort of mainstream movies or even mainstream TV programmes, it's just like some thumping great event that's over in seconds. I'm fascinated that that's what contemporary directors are leaning us towards, because that's probably not reflective of what a woman's looking for in a relationship or a man. What would you say about that? Yes, I suppose the people making these dramas and films are thinking that it has to be sexy to watch. 
to engage the viewer. So, so the idea that somebody might be struggling to get their clothes off, you know, their foot gets caught in their skinny jean and they can't get it off, or actually the man tries to put his penis in the woman's vagina and she says, actually, it's sore. Let me just reach over and get the lubricant. Or the man... The, the, the man suddenly finds actually his erection isn't as strong as it was when they first started having intimacy. And actually he has to stimulate himself with his hand in order to get his erection back again. You know, that's real life. The reason for that is people have an assumption, and I suppose it's a long history of it being this way, that actually people want to see the sort of sex that they think people are aspiring to have. I don't know if you ever saw The Bodyguard. I did. Again, I felt really frustrated when I watched that because the sex was very quick. It was up against a wall. Lots of logistical issues going on and and no foreplay. I mean, I think this is one of the things that I find frustrating and, and it's unhelpful. Women need to be sexually aroused in order for sex to be pleasurable. The, the tissue in the clitoris is like the tissue found in the penis. The tissue in the vulval area is like the tissue found in the penis. It's spongy and it fills up with blood. There is vaginal engorgement that goes on. And that prepares the woman's body for something going in to the vaginal canal. And if that part is missed out, it won't necessarily be enjoyable in fact it's very likely to be uncomfortable at least and very painful at worst and it's frustrating that there isn't a focus on the need for time to be taken for women's bodies to get aroused it, it doesn't happen immediately it takes time and you've got some interesting statistics around that haven't you yeah the number that was banded around for many years was 25% of women will orgasm through penetrative sex. And actually, a couple of years ago, I did uh, an interesting masterclass. It was online with an American uh, teacher, somebody called Dr. Laurie Mintz. And she has done a lot of work looking at female arousal. She's written a book called Becoming Cliterate. Uh, actually, yeah, it's a great title. That was the title of the masterclass. And she's done a lot of her own research and it's published in, in this book. And she says, actually, that number is much smaller. Only about 4% of women will orgasm if something is put into her vagina without any clitoral stimulation. Really no low number. is So it's really important that we understand that women will experience sexual pleasure through clitoral stimulation. They may also experience sexual pleasure through penetration, but it's unlikely, very, very unlikely to be the thing that enables them to have an orgasm. It may be a combination of penetration and clitoral stimulation at the same time. So that's about 34% of women. Um, and about 43% of women will orgasm through clitoral stimulation alone. So that could be by using their own hand, their partner using their hand, uh, their partner giving them oral sex or using a vibrator. And another myth is that uh, men and women have been led to believe that female orgasm is very elusive. It's this sort of thing that occasionally happens, but you have to chase it down and it's really difficult for women to achieve. And that's simply not true. The research shows that about 90% of women will be able to reach orgasm on their own 
using a vibrator or their hands relatively quickly and relatively reliably. So what's interesting is that women can orgasm on their own, but the research that looks at orgasms for women in partnered sex shows there's a big gap, a big orgasm gap. So, and it's about 30%. So if we were to say 60, 65% of women will orgasm with their partner versus about 90 to 90%, 95% of men, that is a big gap, particularly when we know that these women can orgasm when they're on their own. So there, there begs the question, well, why is there that gap? And I think there are a number of reasons for that. But I think one of the reasons is that there is a misconception that it is penetrative intercourse that will enable the woman to experience pleasure. And the woman, because perhaps she's never spoken about this with her, with her husband, is unable to say, this isn't really the thing that I find most sexually enjoyable. And he has been led to believe that it is a hard thrusting penis that will bring his wife to ecstasy and so they're kind of locked they're not talking and they're both a bit confused about how to broach this subject so there's a communication gap there isn't there and we've already touched on the fact that putting some sort of romance and time and fun and intentional date nights into the relationship will set you up that you'll be more likely to have an intimate experience yes. but then actually that intimate experience could again do with a bit of communication so how would you encourage somebody who's listening to this to start that conversation with their partner if it feels like unfamiliar territory which is strange in a way isn't it that you can get naked in front of somebody but you can't talk about it well the thing is I would say communication is the single biggest thing that couples can do to ensure that they have a good sex life and their sex life remains good for the long haul and one of the reasons that communication is so important is that we will be facing seasons of sex that's why I name my book seasons of sex so you might start off with a sex life that's really good and it's enjoyable and pleasurable so you don't feel a need to talk about it it sort of happens you're both enjoying it. You're both assuming actually maybe the other person's enjoying it. And so therefore there's no need to talk about it. And then it's really difficult when actually suddenly sex changes for one person. And it's not a conversation you maybe you have had for the last 10 years because there wasn't a need. So how do you suddenly talk about it? So talking about sex is really important. And the sooner you do it in a relationship, the better. But how do you instigate it? Well, one of the things that I say is don't do it in the bedroom. It's really difficult if you're naked and vulnerable to then raise a subject that potentially could be painful and could elicit all sorts of feelings in the other person. Uh, I'm not good enough. I feel rejected. You're telling me I'm no good. You know, all those kind of things. So what I would do is I would encourage somebody to say to their partner, we never really talk about our sex life. And I think it would be really good I think it's an important part of our marriage or our relationship. Can we schedule a time to talk about it? So again, scheduling. The person then is not caught on the back foot. They know this potentially difficult conversation is coming. They can think a bit about it themselves. And then I think what's important is the person talks about it from their own perspective. So let's imagine you've got a woman and she's approached her husband a couple of times in the last month for sex. And he has said, no, I'm too tired. If she says to him, the last few times I've approached you for sex, you haven't wanted it. And that makes me feel really rejected. 
he's likely to feel defensive. He's going to potentially be like a rabbit in the headlights and he may shut down to that conversation because he may not know exactly what's going on himself. If she says, I'm aware that the last three times I've approached you for sex, you haven't wanted to have it. I feel really sad about it and I miss it. And I, I just want to understand what's going on. He's much more likely to be able to say, I don't really know what's going on. I, I found the last couple of times that we had sex, it was quite difficult for me to stay in the moment or I felt I was losing my erection. And that's never happened before. And it sort of put me off a bit. I feel a bit scared. I'm not going to be able to manage it. Mm. Um, It could be all number of things that he might be feeling. He might say, you know, I I suspect a redundancy is coming my way and I can't really think about anything else. I feel so stressed by it. So it could be all number of causes. But I think talking about it, scheduling a time, talking about it from your perspective will allow the partner to feel there's a space for them to say what might be going on for them. Excellent. And I think also, given that quite a few young mums and dads will be listening to this, it's probably also worth mentioning that it might not be the sex itself or the partnership or the job. It could be that there isn't a lock on the bedroom door and the woman's got her mind slightly on are the children going to come in? Are they awake? Or perhaps the guy doesn't feel the freedom because the kids could pop in. Can you speak into that a little bit? Yeah. So I see this in my practice as well. And personally, I think that it's really helpful to have boundaries around what the bedroom signifies for the parents. And I I personally think that's really important that that is earmarked as a special place for adults, adults only. Kids can come into the bed for a cuddle, but I wouldn't personally advocate children sleeping in the bed because I think a couple of reasons, really. I think it's really important that children get used to a routine. You know, am I in mum and dad's bed tonight? Well, I was yesterday. Will I be again? They don't know whether they're coming or going. And actually having a bedtime routine where they know they go into their own bed or or cot is really important. And they see that mummy and daddy do the same. They have their special space for sleeping and the children have their special space for sleeping. I think it's a really positive kind of nod to the adult relationship as well that we have this place that is a sanctuary for us it's the same place that we had before the children came and it's a place actually that's not going to be encroached on it's going to be kept as a special place for the adults to have time to just lie together might they might not be having sex but just it just a kind of protected space I also think as children get older, it sends an important message to them around mum and dad need some space where they go. And as the children get older, you know, I think it can be very helpful to have a lock on the door so that parents can relax, uh, knowing that they can have some time to be intimate without children, teenagers sort of barging in. And I know from my own experience, I've got teenage kids myself. It's really important for them that I knock before I go in. That, you know, it's their space. They don't want me just barging in as I want to. And I think to give that message back to them, which is mum and dad need some space. We've got to lock on the door. If you need us, just knock. But actually, we might be having a conversation. We might want to be having some time to have a cuddle. You don't need to explicitly say for us to be having sex. If they're teenagers, they'll know what you're up to. And actually, what a fantastic message to give to your kids. We value intimacy. We prioritise it. We ensure that it happens. 
by having this protected space. I think that's a very important message for children to learn. And culturally, I know that's a hard thing for some couples to hear. And if they're having a wonderful sex life, fine. But if they're not having a wonderful sex life or one of the partners aren't as happy as the other, it could be a conversation worth having, couldn't it? I I have to say, I I love that season of life when they get a bit older and it's the evening and, and, you know, they're they're not all in bed by eight and they all start sort of coming in your bedroom and trying your makeup and sitting on the bed and chatting. And I always used to laugh because we could clear the room in seconds by going, right, we're going to make a baby now. Good night, good night, good night. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I was only joking, but it's, uh, it's a good thing to slightly have out there. We can talk about these things, can't we? I was reading your book this week and one of my kids who's 19 was just walking through the room. He said, what are you reading, mum? I said, well, it's interesting you should ask me that because I've got a fantastic picture here and you've got an amazing picture of a penis on one of the pages. He said, yes, well, I'm off now. Now, speaking of the book, I just want to highlight this. It's it's absolutely brilliant. It really says what people need to hear, seasons of sex and intimacy. And I'm going to be recommending it to some of the young girls that I mentor who are coming into marriage. We're going to be chatting about it in our family. My children will be rolling their eyes if they hear this podcast. And I really want to encourage people that within these pages, there are so many solutions but what I, what I want to finish by asking you, as we can't sort of necessarily drill into all of those solutions on this just short conversation, what if you then read the book and there are emotional things or, or psychological things and you haven't resolved it by the suggestions in the book and you do need to approach a sex therapist, can you just kind of break down that stigma by sharing what you might do in a first consultation? Because I think sometimes that's the massive leap for people. Yeah. So the first thing that I would advise anyone do if they're struggling with an aspect of sex is to go and see their GP. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to go to a sex therapist to talk about the fact sex is painful, spend six months exploring the emotional aspects, the relationship, etc., only to find there is an undiagnosed chronic condition like bacterial vaginosis or thrush or urinary tract infection or an abscess, all sorts of things. And that's the same for men. It's really important that if, you've, if you're struggling with a problem like erectile dysfunction, you go as your first put call to your GP, they'll run some blood tests and check that this, this isn't an early warning sign of something going on. So I've got my medical hat on at the very beginning, which is make sure you go and get yourself checked out. And then let's say the GP says, okay, you've got low desire or sex is painful. We've, we've done a check. We've done an examination. If that's required, we can't see anything physical. Then you would make an appointment to go and see a sex therapist. And usually the first session, it's a meet and greet. So I will say to my patient, I might have a referral letter from a doctor or I might not. And I will introduce myself. I'll talk about the way that I work. And then I will say to them, okay, so can you tell me what's brought you here? What have you been struggling with? And sometimes there's a very quick answer to that. And sometimes it will be quite a complex answer. Once I've got a handle on what we're working with, I will then explain to them that I'm going to do an assessment, an in-depth assessment, asking about all aspects of their lives. So I can think about them as a holistic person rather than a penis or a vagina. I can attach those to the person I'm speaking to and think, okay, you're struggling with this sexual issue, but actually you've disclosed to me that you had a long history of sexual abuse as a child. 
or you're struggling with this aspect of sex and you've just been diagnosed with breast cancer or you're recovering from chemotherapy for a treatment uh, to do with cancer, maybe, maybe prostate cancer, could be all number of other medical issues going on. It may be that you've been trying to conceive and you're not able to, and actually you've been told it's very unlikely you've had a number of failed attempts at IVF and you're trying to reframe how you think about sex. So I will get a handle on what the issue is, take an an assessment that usually takes two sessions, and then both the patient and I will kind of formulate what we think the issue is, share some thoughts around what might be going on, and then we'll work out what I call a treatment plan She's a bit of a medical term, but it's what are the steps that we are going to work through or you are going to work through to get to the outcome that you want? And I will always say to a client when I first meet them, tell me what success looks like. So I'm waving you off your final session. What have you achieved through coming to see me? What have you achieved with your partner? So we can be aligned and realistic about what those expectations are. Brilliant. And you used the word client in the singular there. Are you saying that people come as individuals rather yeah. than as couples? Yes. So I intersperse the word patient and client. Yes. I So I work with lots of people on their own and I will also work with lots of couples. So ideally, I will always work with a couple. Sometimes I work with people that are single and they've got a sexual issue and that's making them feel concerned about their ability to get into an, a relationship. You know, maybe somebody experienced erectile dysfunction, their relationship has ended, they're absolutely uh, full of anxiety about the possibility of meeting somebody new because they won't be able, in their mind, to perform. So sometimes I work with single people who ultimately want to meet a partner. And then I work with lots of couples. Sometimes I'll work with somebody whose partner has said, this is your issue, get it sorted. And I always feel sad about that because I very much view sex in a relationship as a team effort, a partnership. And Mm. I really encourage people in my book, if your partner uh, is suffering with an issue, do go with them to their GP. Because that in itself is showing your support. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it could could feel awkward, couldn't it, if it's a difficult area? It comes back to the communication, really, doesn't it? It does. It does. And then would you say, I mean, I did a marriage course a few years ago with Margie Wakefield, and and she said that most of the couples that will come to you, there will be a schleppy and a schlepper. (laughs) Would you say that's true in the case of sex therapy? When you say that, do you mean somebody that is kind of owning the issue and somebody who's tagging along? Yes. Yeah. no, I, I would say that I meet lots of couples that very much view this as a partner thing. It might be that the woman has vaginismus, but the man really recognises that actually he needs to be there to support his wife. The other thing to say about that as well is it's not always that cut and dry. So sometimes a couple have got a really unhealthy, unhelpful dynamic going on. That means that they just get stuck. So an example of that would be with vaginismus. So it might be that I work with a woman who's got a fear of of intercourse. Vaginismus is an involuntary spasm of the vaginal muscle, as I've mentioned. So it's uh, born out of anxiety, but it has a physical consequence. And ultimately, the woman has to sort of retrain her brain 
to recognize this isn't going to be dangerous or harmful for me. But sometimes what happens is you get a scared woman with a very, very caring, but almost over caring husband who is treating his partner like a porcelain doll, you know, frightened to touch, frightened to push anything. And I completely understand how you wouldn't want to push something that didn't feel right. But you can get two people that are not addressing the problem. Interesting. The man, the man doesn't want to appear to be in any way forcing an agenda. So he doesn't say anything. And then they come to me five years down the line. And I'll say to the husband, why didn't you, you know, what was going on for you? And he might say, well, I really did want to have sex, but I sort of felt like I shouldn't say anything because then it might be putting pressure on her. Gosh, um, isn't that an interesting dynamic. Yeah. And you get so you get couples coming to you who haven't had sex for years by the sounds of things. So I get a lot of couples, I think as a result of the book, I get a lot of couples who have not had sex before marriage, often because they are Christians or they have a practice another faith. Uh, they have had expectations about how sex would be for them, not really talked about it. Sex didn't work on their honeymoon, their wedding night, their honeymoon. They come home thinking it will get better. It will get better. It will get better. And it doesn't. They don't talk to anyone about it. A year in, two years in, people start saying, are we going to hear the pitter patter of tiny feet? This poor couple who are struggling, haven't spoken to anyone. They've often stopped speaking to each other about it. And the thing that triggers them to seek help is that they want to conceive. So it's very common for me to work with couples who've been married for many years and not had sex. And at what point would you like to see that couple? I mean, let's within say they've three been months. within three months. Yeah. There we so go. I'm really, I'm, I say that in my book. It's so much easier if I'm working with a couple who've not ended up living like flatmates. Yes. yes. And that's the problem. If you end, If you end up not talking about this problem and living with it, the relationship becomes a, a friendship. Uh, often the couple are really good together. Really teammates. Yeah, great teammates. It's not sexual. And then it, it can be a bit of a schlep, if you like, to get them to be sexual again with each other. Strike while the iron's hot. Within three months, if you're suffering with a sexual problem, go to your GP and then seek help. And on that note, you mentioned that there could be underlying problems. So if there's someone listening to this, give us conditions that they might be overlooking if they're too awkward to go to the doctor. OK, so erectile dysfunction is a very strong marker that there is vascular disease. So things that impact vascular disease, are the same risk factors that affect heart disease, but it's affecting the, the vascular tree around the body. So it is things like high blood pressure diabetes, high cholesterol, those are the most common things. You get symptoms in the penis before you get them in your heart because the arteries supplying the penis are about one to two millimetres in diameter. The arteries supplying the heart are double that, it's about three to four millimetres. So you start to get symptoms in the smaller arteries before you get symptoms in your heart arteries. So it could be a warning sign that actually you need to get your cholesterol under control, your diabetes diagnosed, your high blood pressure under control, because these are things that significantly increase your risk of having a heart event, a heart attack or angina. And if that isn't a good enough reason for someone to yeah. go, I don't know what is. Yes. Emma, 
I have learned so much. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love the book. And I think people will want to dig into different areas and they can quietly take that into a room and find out all sorts of fascinating things. I, I love the way you approach it. And, and I love that what, what your heart is, is for people to have a great intimate relationship together. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Isn't she great? I hope that's been helpful for you. Give me a little nod if you learned a new fact or statistic today. And another little nod if it made you laugh at some point. Emma has such a fantastic balance of humour and knowledge with accessible solutions for different people. Can I encourage you to share this podcast? Out there, there's an awful lot of stats and information that are patently wrong and skewed. It's rare you hear such an information-rich, daring, unapologetic rundown of what might interfere with intimacy, along with those clear solutions and signposts. So I think it's a great one to send out to friends. And I know not everybody likes talking about sex, but everybody has an interest in sex at some level or another. So good clear information can only be helpful. And if you're finding it's a difficult area for you to discuss with your partner, it could be helpful to suggest that you listen to it together or ask if you can ping it across and maybe they might make time to listen to it and perhaps even make a time to chat it through together. But the message is don't settle for less. You don't in your business and you don't with your children. But there are some things in life we just can take for granted. So if there's anything at all from this podcast that resonates, I'd say don't find a way around it, find a way through it. You can always avoid, distract, substitute and ignore things in a relationship that could be improved. You can find your ways round things. And statistically, obviously people are, sadly. But facing an issue, communicating and stretching yourself right through the middle is never going to be comfortable because growth never is, hence growing pains. But aiming for more and daring to face the challenges has got to be worth it. So it's okay if you're in a relationship to ask yourself, are we prioritising each other? Are we comfortable talking about our physical relationship, our intimacy? Are we both content or are there some unmet needs? Is this space, is it safe for each of us to talk about our unmet needs? I dare you, shoot for the stars. The link for Emma's book is in the show notes. Do grab that. I think it's very informative and a very easy and accessible way to learn a lot. And if you like a bit of extra reading, I'll link to Mating Captivity by Esther Perel. And finally, on a lighter note, if you enjoy my podcasts, can I ask you if you'll scroll down and rate and review it? It helps people to find us and also ping one to a friend. And if you don't want to ping this one, ping a different one. We can all learn and grow together. Also to let you know, if you enjoyed the Enneagram 8, which was the new series that I'm doing on personality types, I've done a precy of that on the blog, The Courageous Mama. Pop me a message and let me know what you found helpful. I love a bit of feedback and I'll see you in a couple of weeks.